0: Thank you very much for inviting me to speak. Um, I should start by, by saying I'm, I'm not a paleoanthropologist and I'm, I'm not even an archaeologist. I'm a geographer, so I really have no business in, in putting this up as a title. Um, and the reason, the reason we've kind of got involved with, with, with any of this, um, this sort of theme is partly because a lot of the work that we're doing in geography has, has kind of been catapulted and appropriated by other disciplines. Um, In sort of addressing whether these extreme climatic events in Africa particularly um, have driven um, early human behaviour. And so we've kind of we've kind of got involved in this debate in terms of trying to um, put right some of the things, some of the sort of misinterpretations of some of our data. Um. Okay, so I'm I'm from quite an eclectic range of research groups, so I've got one tentative foot. Um, in zoology, as part of the long-term ecology laboratory, which mainly look at ecological responses to environmental change. I've got a slightly sturdier foot in the School of Geography. I'm part of the Landscape Dynamics research group there, and what they mainly do is is looking at how landscapes um, respond to long-term environmental changes. And within that group, I spend a great deal of my time um, in the Oxford Luminescence Dating Laboratory, which is run jointly with archaeology. Um, and we do a number of things um, in that lab, but, but one of the sort of long-running themes um, over the years has been about placing um, paleoanthropological information within the context um, of environmental change. Um, so just to, to introduce a few projects, so we sometimes we, we do that quite directly. So this is Lane clark Balzan on the, on the left-hand side and Jean-Luc Schwiniger on the right-hand side, um, dating Aterian sites in, in Morocco. Uh, and the middle image is actually the um a Hofmeyer skull from South Africa. Um, and that was work done by, by Richard Bailey and Roger Nathan and they actually were dating sand from inside that skull to try and place that within a chronological framework. Um, more often than not, um, our involvement in that is, is indirectly by looking at um, landscape and environmental dynamics in, in dryland environments. But, Either way, the the overall goal is to to place all of these things on a sort of common chronological framework. So um, we know that climate change comes um, in a number of guises and um, happens on a number of timescales from seasons to hundreds of thousands of years. And we extract that data mainly from um, ice, ocean, and particularly for us, terrestrial sediments. We really want to understand that, partly because if we can get to grips with the nature, the pace, and the frequency of that change, we can say something about what that might mean for humans, both in the future and in the past. In this part of the world, we tend to think of um, climate change being manifested as changes in temperature, at their most extreme, um, swings between glacials um, when most of northern Europe was covered in ice, and, and interglacials like the one we're in today. at the low latitudes, where we do most of our work, um, those changes are mainly manifested um, as as transitions between humid and arid conditions. And increasing humidity or increasing aridity um, is is particularly important um, and very relevant to contemporary society um, and their ability to be able to to adapt to it, to to mobilise and to cope um, with those changes. We also think it was just as relevant to humans in the past, and we think that um, partly because um, it's written on the rocks of the desert. Um, and those environmental changes have, um, have implications for other disciplines. So, last decade in, in archaeological research, it's been particularly fashionable and trendy to. To seek environmental explanations for observations in in the behavioural record of hominins. So the sorts of questions that people are asking are: are how did those hydrological and ecological changes um, impact on on humans that were were occupying the interior of of Africa? So, and things. One question that's particularly addressed in the literature is: was human migration driven by environmental change? Um, now, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a geomorphologist and a, and a geochronologist by trade, um, but I like to tell people if they ask me what I do for a living that I, I'm a time traveller. And I wish I had a TARDIS. I don't, um, sadly. But um, what I hope I can do is, is show you some of the ways that we can go back in time and try and understand what those environments looked like in the past. Um, and then I'll come around to addressing whether whether the way we look at them um, has any relevance for theories of evolution, behaviour and dispersal in the hominin record. So most of my time travelling to date has been done in, in the Kalahari Desert, um, which is in the middle of southern Africa. It's known principally for three things, uh, wildlife, cattle and diamonds. Um, it's it, Outside of the Okavanga Delta, which is this wetland system up here in northern Botswana. That's where people mainly go to see elephants. It's mainly a sort of semi-arid, um, sort of seasonal drought-affected scrubland um, with, a, with a high number of donkeys. It's also um, been home to some interesting characters. Arnold Hodson, who was assistant commissioner for Labazzi and um, policeman in what was then land. Being one of them, and in his book he notes the Kalahari is not quite an ordinary desert. It is made up of sand hills. This is known as the sand dune country, and you can see these these sand hills or, or linear dunes in the background. Now they're not active linear dunes. They're not the kind of sand dunes you might think about that that the child might draw. We tend to think of places like Namibia. These are very stabilised. Um, dunes covered in vegetation we tend to call them fossilised dune systems they're not moving today he goes on to say and constitutes by far the most dreary and depressing part of the desert (coughs) which is a shame because I'm going to talk quite a lot about it in this talk Um, so despite his views it's actually been um, a source of fascination for Europeans for for a very long time um, not least David Livingstone, who's shown there being mauled by a lion. In the the 1800s and 1900s, it seemed to be the place to go if you were an African explorer. And it it still very much um, retains that image, interestingly. So it's still fulfilled as an unexplored and unknown wilderness. If you go to Google and you type in Kalahari, you'll you'll get to a whole load of safari companies offering you um, sort of untouched... A wilderness, desert, a desert backdrop that has untold romance in a landscape of, of nothingness. And, and tourists still turn up there, um, looking as if they're about to embark on some kind of major expedition into the unknown. So how much of that marketing image is true? Is this a place that's really as timeless and devoid of humans as it's built to have been? Um, it's certainly not devoid of humans today, so how long is it? How long have humans been kicking around in the Kalahari? Um, so although Southern Africa has this sort of very rich um, archaeological heritage, the Kalahari, as you can see here, has never really received much attention. This is actually from a relatively old paper now by McBride in books in 2000, um, just showing some of the Middle Stone Age sites across Southern Africa. Um, and that kind of um, absence of, of, or scarcity of sites in the Kalahari has kind of perpetuated this long-held view that this was a part of the world that was probably too inhospitable um, for people. If you are brave enough to delve into a grey literature, um, you find that it's far from archaeological ster- archaeologically sterile. Um, so a lot of this, this data, so the, the red dots are archaeological sites um, from the early Stone Age, middle Stone Age and later Stone Age. A lot of this material is coming out of things like impact assessments for for infrastructure. Um, so we know there's, there's, there's certainly a lot of material there. And if you if you talk to anyone that lives in this part of the world, they'll they'll say, "Oh yes, I have a I have a lovely collection of stone tools on my mantelpiece." And um, we're actually digging around in the in the Geological Survey in Botswana and found this by Jim Wayland, who was the director of the Geological Survey in the 1940s. He notes, when I first arrived, I collected everything I could find in the way of stone artefacts, whether it was mere surface material or not. The collecting of stone implements in this country is a (coughs) never-ending task. And he goes on to make a number of observations, and I've just put three of them here. So he he says that the artefacts are very widely distributed in the landscape. Um, They cover a very long period in terms of their typologies, um, and they show striking evidence Um, they they sit in environments so striking evidence of of climatic change Um, and he says those artefacts with a geological setting tell a story of profound significance in man's prehistory throughout the Kalahari sadly that's a story that still largely um, remains untold we too in our our poking and prodding of Kalahari sediments have come across an extraordinary diversity of paleolithic archaeology Um, including some, some very large um, components which tend to um, send archaeologists into a flurry of excitement. And that's, that's my, my hand for scale. I've got very small hands, but those are, those are very large hand axes. Um, and we don't really know what these, what these are, what they were made for. Um, one member of the public did helpfully email us to say this surely is proof of giants. Um, <coughs> we have found one reference to very large stone tools in Africa uh, made by Van Riet Lo in the 1950s in Tanzania. Um, So they found a stone tool weighing 36 pounds. And he says, the skill and strength required to detach such flakes must have been remarkable. Now, I I would love to tell you more about them, but um, we still know extraordinarily little about whose toolkit that was and when and why they were here what I can do is tell you about the sort of environments that they might have lived in, and why we think pristine and unchanged are not particularly good adjectives to describe this part of the world. So despite all that interest and fascination with the Kalahari, um, it wasn't until this chap came along, this is Dick Grove, who was a Cambridge geographer, in the 1960s, Um, and he, he took a Ford pickup and spent six weeks driving around um, Botswana, um, looking at landforms. You have to remember, this was, this was part of the world that was incredibly poor and, and devoid of roads um, at that time, so that, that was no mean feat. Um, and he produced this paper, which has become a sort of seminal paper in, in um, geography circles. what he did was recognise that this was a landscape that preserved evidence of major climatic changes um, in its landforms. And he linked those landforms to the the formative climatic conditions at the time. So he says the Aleb dunes, or the linear dunes that we were looking at earlier, represent a period of aridity when the rainfall was less, probably much less than 250 millimetres, as compared with over 500 millimetres today he went on to classify those dunes into different forms and orientations and make inferences about sort of formative conditions um, when that sediment was being laid down. So the idea being that um, stabilised vegetated landforms that we see today were once as as active as their sort of modern analogs that we find in places like like Namibia at the moment. Um, And that might not seem like a particularly big um, revelation. The trouble with Africa is that an awful lot of it is desert. And the trouble with desert is that you don't get the preservation of those beautiful biological proxies, the sort of things that are coming out of, of, of Lake Malawi and Lake Victoria. So it's just too... Um, the environment is too oxidising, so those things don't survive. So we don't have those, all we have is these landforms in order to try to get some sense of, of environmental history in these parts of the world. And, and these landforms we, we now know as geoproxies um, have become really very important. The key development since Grove drove around the Kalahari in his Ford pickup is, is the sort of um, development of something called optically stimulated luminescence dating. And that's a geochronological tool. Um, which has been used to sort of date these landforms. And I, I have a remit I've told I'm not allowed to be very technical, so I'm not going to go into any detail, but basically what, what we can do is use quartz, which is, is a very useful mineral because you find it everywhere, um, as, a, as a little clock. And that clock gets reset when it's blowing around and is exposed to light. Once So once it's, it's buried again, In a landform like a sand dune or a lake shoreline, that clock starts ticking. We can actually measure how long that that sand has been deposited. So that means we can start to directly date some of these depositional processes and landforms. And since we discovered we could do that, we've been dating landforms left, right, and centre. So since 1982, there's been this proliferation of papers. basically dating dune sediments and making some inference about past um, climatic change. Um, So if you go to the early papers, you assume... So we assume this link that um, if we go and date a nice, stabilised sand dune, um, we can date when it was active, and that will tell us something about arid episodes in the past and, and very helpfully get you a very nice paper in Nature. So back in the 1990s, it was all quite simple. Since then, we've got much better and faster at dating those sediments, and we've got much better and faster at sampling those landforms. So rather than having to, to dig a, a large hole, um, which might take you a couple of days, we now have a, an auger we can, get, we can sample the full dune profile um, in a few hours. So you might think we have a, a pretty good um, grasp now on when those arid episodes were in southern Africa. You might think. This is data taken, try and ignore the, the, um, the sort of smooth line and look at these, these points are actually dated dune field activity. And this is the data we had in 1997, so it seemed quite sensible. Um, during the last glacial maximum, it got very dry. We had a big arid episode. We, we dug a few more holes and we got a bit more data and we, we discovered that actually it seems to have been quite dry during the Holocene as well. Since we've been sampling things with, with augers and dating things all over the place, we've managed to fill in an awful lot of those gaps. So, what's going on here? Has, has, this, has Southern Africa been arid most of the time? Um, we've really started to um, rethink some of the ideas, some of the, the basic premises on which um, we look at this data. Rather than looking back in time and trying to interpret what we see, um, we've kind of changed the question around. We've asked what happens if we, if we got back into our TARDIS and we went 10,000 years into the future, and we look back at those contemporary processes that were happening today. How much of that would we actually see? So we turned to some work done by um, Professor David Nash at Brighton University. And what he did was identify these episodes of, of climate extremes, so extreme rainfall events and extreme droughts, he did that from, from missionary records, historical records, so good old David Livingston again. And that's for an 85-year period. So here it is um, plotted up here on this top graph. And here I've, I've, I've plotted it just on one map. Um, and the reason I've done that is because from our perspective 10,000 years in the future, no, we have no geochronological tool that, can, that has precision enough to separate those events. So that's all we would see is a sort of... It's effectively instantaneous in geological time. Now, that's premised on the fact that we would see these climatic events, that these climatic events would have some kind of geomorphological consequence. Um, so, ironically, the one place we can test that is back in the southwest Kalahari. Um, we looked at the um, temporal variability of, of Kalahari genes. So... Um, this is a sort of area that has, usually has sufficient um, vegetation in order to hi- inhibit regular sand transport. But what happens during um, drought events, or multi-year drought events, is that, that that vegetation dies off and these dunes start to become active again. And once they become active, then that, that sand, that quartz that we're dating at, can effectively become part of our record. So we would see that from 10,000 years in the future. So those ages we're getting for dune activity may not represent very long-term regional climate change, but short-duration variability that is, that is the norm for this sort of environment. So what do we do? Do we throw away all the, all the data we have for, for deserts? Um, one of the interesting things about the Kalahari is it sits on this very steep rainfall gradient, and there's a number of fossilised dune fields in this. So this was the southwest Kalahari I was talking about. There's a few more up here in Zambia we can actually quantify, um, using something called a mobility index, the sensitivity of those dune systems to climate change and variability. Um, so 70, which is, is the limit, um, sort of the threshold between activity, um, total dune stability and activity on the crest, 160 is the limit between crestal activity and, and the movement of sand on the flanks, and 700 um, is the, limit, is the sort of lower limit of total dune activity. If you look at those dunes in Zambia, in the northwest Kalahari, the mobility index values for the period from 1961 to 1990 are always below 10, um, regardless of that season, so they're never becoming active. Um, In comparison, those dunes in the southwest Kalahari have ranged from as low as 16 in 1993 to an excess of 700 for drought years like 1984. So what that means is that the sensitivity of dune fields to global climatic shifts Actually, actually varies regionally, and because we can't assume that this rainfall gradient has always been constant in time, it probably varies over time as well. So we need to be very careful um, if we lump all of these records of, of arid episodes together about what they actually mean. So how else can we try and give this part, get this part of the world to give up its secrets? Um, and one of the sort of most useful sources of environmental information is coming um, out of lake basins. And there's been, a, again, like like the the, June, the use of there has been a massive increase in that, and there's there's a proliferation of papers. Actually, if you put on the next five years, partly because there's a whole load of new proxies coming out of Africa that are these um, plant wax lipids that give us independent records of um, temperature change and hydrological change. Unfortunately, again, we don't have those in the desert. Um, so we took our bag of, of technology and tried to get some information out of the lake basins we have there in a, in a, in a slightly different way. I'm going to introduce you to this is, this is Paleo Lake Makarikari. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a large um, Paleo Lake that sits at the bottom of the Okavanga Delta here. Um, it's fed by the Okavango River, which has its source about 1,200 kilometres to to the northwest, um, and it's it's made up principally of, of, of three basins: the Mbabane depression, the Lake Ngami, and the makadi pans. Um, now, those basins they're not wet today; they're, they're seasonally dry. So, this is, this is what Makarikari Basin looks like um, if you go there in the dry season today. And if you're having trouble imagining that as a, as a large lake, we can, we can helpfully pour some water onto a digital elevation model, which might give you some idea of um, what that might have looked like in the past. And actually, when you do that, we realise that, that that is a lake that was probably at its maximum extent about 66,000 square kilometres, which is much larger than, or a little bit larger than, Lake Victoria. So that's, that's not an, an insignificant water body to have in your backyard. It looks a little bit insignificant when you look at it on the ground today. So behind all those cows, you can see this line of trees here. And that's actually they're actually sat on a, um, a sandy depositional shoreline, um, which is in the Lake Ngami Basin. Um, what we did was, was go to those shorelines and apply this sort of systematic dating program to try and get some information about when those shorelines were forming so we could find out when that lake um, existed um, in the Kalahari. <coughs> um, and we did that quite successfully. We can go back about 140,000 years, um, and as recently as about 300 years, which is quite nice because it means we can tie it into the historical records. So... David Livingstone, when he was um, in search of Lake Ngami, would have seen the tail end of that that last lake phase. And here he is on the shore, looking very impressed with a fine-looking body of water in Lake Ngami, and here are some Australian archaeologists looking a little less impressed um, with the the absence of water in in 2008. So in short, we can put all that together and we can... um, We can sort of develop a record, quite a complex record, but a record nonetheless of when that lake existed. Um, We know much less about what drove that lake um, in the first place. What's interesting about this system is because it has its source in the tropics, um, it's very possible and actually very likely that that this lake system is driven not by local climate change, but actually by, by intensification, perhaps of rainfall up here in the tropics. So I've told you that dunes don't necessarily mean dry. Am I about to tell you that lakes don't necessarily mean wet? Um, well, we went on to do a number of um, experiments trying to explore that idea, and actually we teamed up with Joy Sangara from um, Bristol University. Um, and we, we wanted to look at what would happen if you put a large lake into that dry system. Um, so she used this uh, Hadley Centre coupled ocean-atmosphere general circulation model, <coughs> and basically we, we ran some experiments looking at um, what, the, what the climate system looks like if that lake is there when it's full, and what it looks like when it's when it's dry and empty, and just by the mere presence of that surface water and the recycling of that water within the hydrological system, you can increase the local um, precipitation by about 10 to 15 percent. And that's not across the year. That tends to be concentrated within the summer rainfall season. So you're increasing the rainfall and you're making it more seasonal at the same time. So what does that have any um, ecological um, knock-on effects? Um, Well, we we tied it then to a a terrestrial biosphere model. We wanted to see what that would do to vegetation. And it turns out that just the presence of that lake um, can increase the net primary productivity of both grasses in this plot, the trees in this plot by about 50%. So, if you're trying to make your living in the Kalahari, that's a fairly significant change. We've tried to um, test that empirically, but again, we don't have very much to go on. So, we've started to use um, phytoliths, which are little plant cell fossils, particularly found in grasses. Um, and most of the Kalahari now is, is composed of what you call C4 grasses, so um, they're dryland-adapted species. When we look at the record coming out of those times of high lake stands, um, it's still a grassland system, it's still a savanna system, um, but it tends to be dominated by, um, by C3, so, so slightly more humid-adapted um, species of grass. So, is it really as timeless and devoid of humans as its builds have been? Um, it certainly has had humans there for a very long time, or hominins there for a very long time. Um, and actually, we think it's much more dynamic and variable um, than we ever previously thought. Um, so, we've swung from kind of dunescapes to mega lakes and back again. Um, we, we probably sit on some, some continuum within that. Um, in the contemporary environment. Um, One of the problems comes when we try to integrate um, data across a large area. So how does all that data from the Kalahari fit within the bigger picture of the stories emerging from from Lake Victoria, from Lake Malawi, and all those nice bioproxies? And the answer is, it doesn't very well at all. Um, We find it quite hard to reconcile um, records from different regions. Um, and that's partly because of the, the sort of prism through which we look at these environments. So the tropics and the subtropics um, produce these sort of nice continuous data sets. Um, they're often quite poorly chronologically constrained, but uh, they tell us about perhaps subtle changes in the ecosystems, and we make interpretations about what that means in terms of climatic change. Um, when you go to drylands... Um, you have this sort of very erratic um, behaviour in drylands. The moving average of that change is not, is not dissimilar from what you might find in the tropics. But we don't, we don't use that moving average. We don't have access to that moving average when we're looking back in the past. All we can see um, is when the system crosses some threshold and it gets recorded in the landscape. So we see that landscape instability. We see events, um, these high-magnitude, short-frequency events, but we don't see the sort of continuous pattern. So I like to think about it as in dryland research we have a series of snapshots of, of photographs we can, we can place very precisely in time as opposed to a sort of fuzzy, continuous um, video perhaps of what, what's going on. Um, and so in terms of thinking about why any of this really matters, um, I wanted to make two key points. Um, so, so when you go to the literature and you find that... that there's an awful lot of controversy in there. Partly it's because um, the proxies matter. The prism through which we see those environments is important. In the tropics, we're able to distinguish continuous changes, though not always with a high-resolution chronology, and we tend to see directional changes in climate. In drylands, um, we can accurately date landscape instability. We know when the system has crossed the threshold. Um, what we don't know is what happens in between. Um, so what we see are these high-magnitude events rather than trends. Um, and secondly, drylands appear more variable probably because they are more variable. Um, so this is, just, this is actually the, the Sahel, so, um, and this is just a record, just to, just to illustrate really how different those systems can be, both on an intra-annual and interannual basis. Um, so when you work in deserts and drylands, um, you expect this high level of variability. Um, In Schantz, 1956, which is a reasonably well-known quote, in drylands, annual precipitation frequently varies substantially from year to year, so that in semi-arid, arid, arid, and hyper-arid areas, the only safe assumption is that any year could be extremely arid. Um, So the Kalahari really throws, from from our perspective, throws a big spanner into the works. It doesn't really fit into continent-wide or hemisphere-wide theories of environmental change it is and always has been spatially and temporally complex. So what do we do with that data? Um, how do we synthesise this into some um, theory of what's going on, um, in, in, even just within southern Africa? And when you go to the literature and you look at these synthesis papers, people tend to do two things. They either retain all those um, conflicts, all of those wet and dry episodes that we see all at once, Um, which is very confusing if you're a a student or a a paleoanthropologist innocently going to literature and trying to find out what's (coughs) going on. Or you can can find reasons to eliminate whole data sets, and you can keep doing that until you get a nice homogenous pattern. I think coming from an environmental perspective, it's very important what we do in those syntheses because that's the data that tends to get appropriated and, and taken into other disciplines. Um, and that's the data that gets used to, to sort of test these hypotheses about what that environmental change meant for, for our, own, our own history, our own humanity. And something that I think is, is emerging quite, quite clearly. From from a lot of these records, particularly actually in in the East African datasets where we've we've now got a lot more of these these proxies, um, is that these extreme climatic events um, are probably very unlikely to produce spatially and temporally homogeneous environmental change, we should expect a patchwork of environments, even if, if the climatic change that, that might cause them is, is wide scale and we're getting big reorganisations of these climate systems. So this is just a figure taken from Tierney et al, um, some model data. And even, even the sort of model data, which is fairly simplistic, um, tends to throw out these predictions for sort of patchwork environments within, within Africa, at least. And when I was trying to think about this... Um, I came across a paper by by Matt Grove, who's an archaeologist in Liverpool, I think. And he writes, Spatial and temporal variability probably resulted in persistent ecological change in which communities are continually fragmented and reassembled in novel ways. So perhaps this kind of patchwork um, landscape might be important um, when we start thinking about what effect the environment might have on humans. So all we've... We've really been thrown into this debate, um, partly because a lot of our data has been, been used um, to make these arguments, um, is to sort of bang the drum for a little bit of caution, um, and these sort of continent-wide, hemisphere-wide events that are supposed to have had some major impact on, on human behaviour, to actually say you know, there's an awful lot of variability within that environment, both spatially and temporally. Um, And something else I guess I wanted to bring here was was perhaps, just perhaps, we're asking the wrong questions of that data. Um, And people like Rick Potts from the Smithsonian Human Origins Program have different hypotheses that that perhaps the important factor is not climatic change, but climatic variability. Now, I'm I'm not a paleoanthropologist. I know very little about evolutionary theory, I do know if you go to these deserts today, um, the people that live there have to be extremely adaptable, extremely versatile and and innovative in order to cope with that uncertainty, in order to cope with that extreme variability um, in their environment. Um, So perhaps that's also been important in our past. Um, So just to conclude, our our extreme climatic events as drivers of human behaviour in Africa... Significant, probably, Um, but perhaps it's the frequency of those events that's just as important um, as as perhaps their magnitude. And those apparent conflicts that we have in the paleoenvironmental data, um, particularly in drylands that that people don't like and they tend to to leave off their their synthesis papers or, or leave out of their data sets, um, are probably an artifact of an environmental reality that those environments are highly variable, and that's why we have records of them being highly variable. Um, so we shouldn't throw away that data um, because it doesn't fit with those big homogenous theories. Um, so I, I guess I wanted to finish by saying it's you know it's very fashionable and probably quite useful to ask this, the question of, of whether these extreme climatic events drive human behaviour, but. We need to exercise a lot of care when we look at these complex data sets. Um, that the, and we need to be careful that the, that data speaks for itself rather than being sort of shoehorned into some preconceived theory. So as a, as a geomorphologist who's completely out of the depth on this, I wanted to throw back questions to you about how likely it is um, that environmental variability might have driven... Sort of behavioural plasticity might have driven those changes. How important is that, that sort of adaptive versatility in terms of evolutionary theory, and, and how, how relevant, if at all, are deserts in, in that debate? Thank you. Thanks. For... <clears throat>